Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Almost Doesn't Count, a top 20 pop and R&B hit for Brandy that was co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Shelley Pikin. Shelley is a multi-platinum songwriter best known for co-writing Christina Aguilera's number one hits What a Girl Wants and Come On Over Baby, All I Want Is You. She was nominated for a Best Rock Song Grammy for pinning Bitch with Meredith Brooks, who took the song to number two on the Billboard Pop Charts in 1997. Additionally, she's penned songs such as I Want to Be With You for Mandy Moore and Out From Under by Britney Spears. Celine Dion has recorded four of Shelley's songs, while Miley Cyrus, NSYNC, David Archuleta, Selena Gomez, Demi Lovato, Plain White Tees, and Gladys Knight have each recorded two or more songs from the Pikin catalog. Others who have covered Shelley's music include Jesse J, The Divinals, The Pretenders, Reba McIntyre, Lisa Loeb, Jennifer Lopez, Expose, Aaliyah, Backstreet Boys, Vanessa Hutchins, Smash Mouth, NXS, Keith Urban, Michelle Branch, Natasha Bedingfield, and the cast of the hit TV show Glee. Shelley is a regular blogger for the Huffington Post and has just released her first book, Confessions of a Serial Songwriter. So Scott, you've written a book. I have. You think that makes you better than me? <laughs> uh, well, that and some other things. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's actually a really good book. Um, <laughs> Thank you. But uh, th- that probably gives you kind of a unique perspective when we're talking to Shelley Pikin, who's not only a songwriter, but an author. Yeah, yeah. It definitely, the, the, the whole process of, of writing a song and writing a book are definitely uh, very different undertakings. Yeah. Um, actually, Shelley's publisher is Backbeat Books, which is the same publisher who... Uh, put out my book Southbound, and uh, Wes, who is the very cool uh, PR uh, publicity guy there, he reached out to me and said, "Hey, um, Shelly Pikin has written a book about songwriting. Would you guys like to have her on the podcast?" And I was like, uh, "Shelly Pikin of you know what a girl wants yeah. fame, yeah. yeah, we would definitely like we, to have be, her. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. be happy with that. Yeah, so it was pretty cool to uh, to get that message from him and uh, and to go and and meet with Shelly." Um, and so we're going to let everybody hear all of, uh, all of that goodness in just a second, yeah. but did want to let people know we're doing something kind of special on this episode of Songcraft. Uh, we are giving away two copies of Shelley Pikin's brand new book, Confessions of a Serial Songwriter. Um, and so what we're going to do is have listeners email us and then randomly draw a couple of names out of a hat. Do you have a hat, Paul? Uh, no, but but I need one because uh, I I get sunburn on the top of my head. But thanks for asking. We, and we should get you a hat also so we can draw a name because we're yeah. gonna, that's coming up. We've said we're going to do it. We need to do it. Yeah, well, it's it's great to repurpose things. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we're going to draw a name, uh, and two winners are going to win a copy of that book, Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, which I have read, and it is uh, a really good read, very fun book. So to enter that drawing, we just need you to go to our website at songcraftshow.com. Click on the tab that says contact, which will pull up the form where you can enter your name, your email address, and then in the comments section, we just need you to write confessions of a serial songwriter. April 15th is the deadline to get that to us, and soon after that we will announce on an episode of Songcraft who our winners are, and we will also notify you directly. And if you have a really long name, just write it small enough that it can fit in a hat. <laughs> That's all that really matters in terms of making sure that we can actually 
carry out this process the way we've got it planned out. Right. We're new with this whole drawing thing. Yeah. So, you know, we don't want to mess it up. We need all the help we can get. Um, <laughs> with that in mind, how about we go to our discussion with Shelly Pikin? Absolutely. Shelly, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you for having me. So you have a new memoir out called Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, published by Backbeat Books. Um, now, being a songwriter is somewhat of a confessional occupation to, to begin with, but um, talk about what prompted you to share these stories from your life and your career in book form. Well, I don't think I realized I was writing a book when I started writing it. Uh, the stories came out of a need for me to find some humor in a lot of the changes that have come about in the music industry and the songwriting business. I've been doing it for two decades plus, um, had a great career. I'm still having a really great time. Um, however, I think that there have been some challenges that have made moving forward a little confusing for me. And instead of staying confused, I decided to start writing about it. And the writing itself sort of was a journey to find peace with where I'm at and where I want to go, how I want to continue. Now, were you thinking of songwriters as your audience for this book, or, or was it more about kind of educating the general public? You know, I was really writing selfishly for myself. Hmm. I didn't want to think about uh, who is this for, because then you sort of change what you write. I just thought, um, I want to tell the truth. It's the same way I write a three-minute song. I try to tell the truth about something, and then I think about where I can aim it. Right. Um, I'm not the kind of songwriter, and I never have been, to look at an artist who is making a record and say, I know they're making a record, what's their high note, what words do they say, hmm. and write specifically for them. Right. A lot of people are good at that. I'm not. I just, I really needed to simply tell the truth about what I was feeling. And again, I wasn't sure that it was a book until I was maybe halfway through. Well, back before you got into writing books or even writing songs, I want to go back to the early days. When was the first time that you heard music that really captured your attention and made it feel like something you wanted to be a part of? I was riding my bike, and I heard the carpenter sing close to you coming from a car window. I, I just thought it was magic in yeah. the air. I just, between the sound of her voice and, and um, Britt Bacharach's songwriting, and I just got on my bike and followed the car. I'm just picturing the this the idea of someone driving down the street and looking in their rearview mirror and seeing this very right. intense uh, pigtailed little girl on a on a bike chasing the car down. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was just so beautiful. That's I didn't awesome. want it to disappear. As you sort of became aware that there were people who um created songs. Um, who were some of the early songwriting heroes for you during your formative years? Well, I have to say my teenage years, it was all about Carly Simon. I mean, she just, she wrote very confessionally, no pun intended, right. the name of my book. But I just loved how she explored her inner, her innerness. Um, and I would say when I was younger, I just, I felt like any song I heard was written by the artist who sang it. Right. It never occurred to me that somebody else might have written their song. Um, and 
growing up, I started trying to find that same place that Carly wrote from. And I was able to access it. But as I got older, I thought, well, if I can't get a record deal myself, what am I going to do with all these songs? It wasn't until I was older that I'm a little bit late to the party that it dawned on me that people actually sing songs written by songwriters and how lucky for songwriters. Well, after college, you ended up in New York City where you formed a band and you started getting involved in songwriting workshops. Talk about the role those workshops played in your development and what value those kind of experiences can have for up-and-coming writers. Yeah, well... I went to college for something other than songwriting because I still didn't realize that people did it for a living. People could do it for a living. When I got out of college, I came to New York City. I um, did a couple of interviews in the garment district. I had studied fashion design, the merchandising of clothing. And I wasn't sure that was, that felt right to me. And, um, I decided to become a waitress <laughs> yeah, instead. And I, when I was looking through the paper, um, I saw an ad for a songwriting workshop in the city, and I was very curious, and I got myself there. I walked into this room in the back of the bar, and there were all these people that had the same affliction. I thought, oh, my gosh, all these people aren't the artists making the record. They're they're writing their songs and they don't know where they're, they're just writing their songs, playing them for each other and people would listen and, and say, I like the verse, but the hook didn't really get to me or vice versa, or this could be better, that was perfect. It was just, it was like a support group. Um, I don't know why that isn't so prevalent these days. I mean, there are conventions and workshops, but this was a place to go for free and just share your stuff. And it was very beneficial because you got to work out your, your songs and you got better by listening to how they made people feel. You could just sense the energy in the room when something worked. Um, I understand that it was through a songwriting workshop that you connected with Alexandra Forbes, who would go on to write Don't Rush Me, which was a big hit for Taylor Dane in the 80s. Um, You guys formed a duo and even put together your own songwriting workshop. Uh, Talk about what kind of stuff you guys were writing and performing in that era. Oh, my gosh. Alex and I, you know, she had her... She was a pretty good guitar player, but I had this, um, this Casio that I performed our gigs on and it was this like you know two foot keyboard perched on top of a pole (laughs) with um a button on it that did automatic drum fills i mean we our songs were clever um they were not professional we didn't know it we didn't care Mm. our friends came the enthusiasm was contagious and it was a stepping stone. It was a growing experience. And from that, she got, you know, Don't Rush Me was a huge hit for Taylor Dane. I have to say also, we are still, we had relationships. Right. Huh. You wrote with somebody and you really spent a lot of time with them. It wasn't like you got in the room with them for one day, right. said nice to meet you and wrote a quick song. Yeah. We had relationships. <laughs> right. And people I wrote with 25 years ago are still in my life. Wow. Well, the first song of yours to get cut was Carry Your Heart, which Taylor Dane recorded on her debut album in 1987. I'm guessing that your relationship 
relationship with Alex Forbes might have been involved there. Um, tell us about writing that song and how Taylor ended up getting her hands on it. Well, um, she introduced me to Rick, who was Taylor's, uh, who was producing a record for Taylor. And he, now here's an interesting thing about that. I listened to other material Taylor did, and I thought, I'm going to write a song specifically for her. And I got together with a friend of mine who did a lot of music, and we wrote a song that I wasn't even that excited about, but it felt like the genre. Yeah. And I put it on a little cassette. I don't know if people are going to remember what, what those were. <laughs> and then for... Good luck. I put on a second song, and it was a song that I didn't necessarily write for her, but something I had written when I sat down at the piano the week before, and this song just fell from the sky into my lap, and I felt it, and it was inspired, and I stuck that on the cassette tape, and I actually lived at the time not too far from her house and one night I sort of drove my didn't sort of I did this I drove over <laughs> to her house and I stuck it under the the I'm, when you're young you're fearless you just yeah. do, people say how do you get a song cut there's no right way you yeah. just you just go for it you try to have some manners and keep a little distance and right. and then right. do what you have to do um and I left it under her doormat and she found it in the morning I guess Rick said be careful when you step out of your house <laughs> and she, and Rick called me the next day and said you know she didn't feel that song that you wrote for her but she loved that afterthought Wow! and to this day I look back at that and I think that's because I wasn't calculating right. and thinking on that last song nothing ever happened with that first song Interesting. I don't even remember the name of it Right. but for me it's always been feel don't think. Right. That kind of mantra works way better for me. Not for everybody, but for me. Sure. And that song went on to be a simple album cut. It was never a single on Taylor's record. Yeah. It sold three million copies. I was the only writer on it. And I have to say, to the shock of some younger people just coming into the business, I probably didn't have to work again for the whole year. Wow. Those, uh, those economics have certainly changed. Um, you know, it, it's easy for people to look at a successful songwriter like yourself, and here we are with their platinum records all around the walls, uh, but it's easy for people to not realize that for every win, there are at least as many near misses and disappointments. You know, I understand that Wilson Phillips cut one of your songs, but the label kept it off the final album due to some kind of behind-the-scenes maneuvering. Tell us what happened and how you kind of try to deal with those music business politics in general. You know, Wilson Phillips was making a record. I wrote a song with my friend Valerie Block, and the label loved it, had it recorded. I believe Glenn Ballard made a really nice recording of it. And then we were told from the sister publishing company of said label that they would only put it on the record if they got 50% of the publishing of the song. Now, I have to tell you, even a buzz group, people are just you know, sure. giving away publishing all over the place. Yeah. 
But back then, it was a new concept, at least for me. And um, I said, they have some nerve, and I'm going to, I don't think that they'll really do it. They really love the song. Well, lo and behold, um, I said no, and the song did not go on the record, which went on to sell over 10 million albums. So I slept at night after I made that decision. After they sold 10 million records, I didn't sleep too much. (laughs) You know, but there is no right or wrong. I know there are other writers who want to write with really hot producers who will agree to take 10% of a song, even though that there's three people in the room. Hmm. And who am I to tell them that that's the wrong thing to do. There is no right or wrong. Maybe that song went on to become a huge hit and yeah. catapulted yeah. them into the game. Yeah. You know, yeah. there really isn't a right or wrong when it comes to that. Well, your first charting single was Curtis Steiger's You're All That Matters to Me, which was a top 20 adult contemporary single in 1992. But I actually want to ask you about another song of yours called Every Time You Cry, uh, which Curtis recorded on his follow-up album a couple of years later. Every time you cry Save up all your tears I will be your rainbow When they disappear Wash away the pain Till you smile again I will be the laughter in your eyes Every time you cry. I understand that getting that song cut was no easy feat And once it was cut, you ran into some uh, speed bumps Tell us the story about how all that unfolded So... Greg Sutton and I wrote this song. We had a great few days. We got to know each other. We didn't write a song like immediately. And um, then we continued a couple days later in his hotel room where we wrote this song called Every Time You Cry. And Clive Davis heard it, um, put it on hold. And, you know, hold is a great thing. It could also be a four-letter word because sometimes a song could be held for a long time. Yeah. The thing yeah. is, if Clive Davis holds your song, no matter how long he holds it for, it's usually okay because he usually finds somebody to record it and you're usually not disappointed. Right. <laughs> right. So um, it wasn't until maybe two years later that he finds a home for it, Curtis Steigers, and we're ecstatic. And um, I think... He had four versions with established producers that Greg and I thought any of these could be great, but what do we know? We're not, you know, A&R, yeah. and Clive obviously knows something we don't know. So um, finally, I just thought to myself, I'm going to ask Adam, my husband, who's also a musician and a film, he does film score and TV stuff, to do a version what have we had? To, what do we have to lose? Right. So Adam does some tracks. I get a hold of Curtis because I knew his publisher at the time. So Curtis comes and sings it. We mix it to a little DAT. Remember those? Yeah. So it was like cassette, CD, DAT. Yeah. I mean, like all these versions of formats. And we FedEx it to Clive, and we go off to Cabo. And as soon as we get there, I call my answering machine, remember those. This whole conversation is really making me look stone age. And there's a message from Rose, Clive's secretary, saying Clive wants to meet you tomorrow or Thursday, whatever. He loves this. And we thought, oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. We're in Cabo. (laughs) But we packed our bags. It was Clive Davis. We packed our bags and we went back. And... um, Clive listened to it in front of us in the um, fancy hotel room. And Adam and I were just in awe. And it 
Indeed, it went on the record, and Adam was, I say in my book, was was actually paid to do a job we weren't hired for, as opposed to <laughs> fighting to get paid for right, jobs yeah. you, you are hired right, for. Right, right. But somewhere along the line, um, my my dear friend Curtis is is very candid about his feelings and musings and said something that I think didn't sit well with the label. I don't even know what it was. And I heard that that was the case. I don't even know if it was true, but all of a sudden the label wasn't giving this album a lot of love and it fell by the wow. wayside. And that was it after yeah. this whole long ordeal. Wow. And, um, talk about ups and downs. It wasn't maybe a year later that John Farnham in Australia heard the song through his publisher and did a duet with a group called Human Nature. And it went number one. Wow. A number one hit. Amazing. But I understand there was actually yet another little glitch. The song came out and it had a motif in it that was a very common motif. But we didn't realize how common it was at the time. We went to it because it felt good. But we heard from the publisher of a song called Take My Breath Away that we had infringed on their song because our song went... Every time you cry, and they said, uh, your song isn't so original, and we are going to take you to court. And we thought back, and I thought, you know, maybe it did sort of have a familiar ring to it, but we were so engaged in writing the right. song that right. we weren't thinking about it. It just felt so good. Right, right. So we hired a musicologist, and what the musicologist found, luckily, was this Da 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 was in so many songs. It mm. was in Prince's Diamonds and Pearls. Da 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 da. It was in Smokey Robinson's um, Everything I Touch. Was was that it? I think it was everything. I. It was in so many songs. In fact, the that motif was some kind of ancient diatonic motif that had been around <laughs> for so so long right. that it established there was something called prior art so if we were to be sued by every breath you take then every breath you take would have to answer to all the art that came right. before it right so it went away, lucky for us. These days, it's like, oh, people are just borrowing from everything. I think yeah. how innocent we were back then. You know, you also think there's like a whole team of people, you know, in the process of getting a song on an album or to the radio. You'd think somebody, somebody would have caught that said, at some point. Yeah, but they're not at um, at risk. Right. If we get sued, they still make their money from the, from the record. It's right. the songwriters who own the copyright that are going to have to deal with the financial... Right, that they're going to have to get the fallout. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's so wild to me to think about that song of, uh, we've we've written this song, uh, it, well, now it's on hold, but it's not getting cut. Okay, now they're trying to cut it, but uh, it, it's not working. So we're going to take matters into our own hands, and we're going to cut it ourselves. Okay, now it is being released, but the, the label's not pushing it, so it's not really working out. But now we have a number one in another country on the same song. Yeah, we're being oh, and now we're getting <laughs> it's Crazy. such a microcosm the of, a song. of the entire emotional gamut of the music industry right there yeah, in one crazy. song. Um, well, after that first Taylor Dane cut in the late 1980s, you had 
your songs recorded by quite a number of artists, uh, including Natalie Cole, Samantha Fox, Expose, Celine Dion, Regina Bell, quite a few others. Um, but it wasn't until 1997, after you had moved from New York to Los Angeles to, to be with your now husband, Adam, um, that you had your first major hit single on the pop charts with a song um, you actually co-wrote with the artist, Meredith Brooks. I'm a bitch, I'm a where the idea for that song came from, how you and Meredith put it all together, and, and what role that played in both your careers. Oh, well, it just turned my career downside up. Uh, I mean, it wasn't down. I was getting a lot of activity. In those days, we survived on album cuts. But it had been almost uh, over 10 years since I got my first um, album cut and never had that big single. The, after I got my first album cut, I thought, oh, well, that big single right. is around the corner, two right. years away. Right. And my friend Evan Lamberg, who was in publishing at the time, said, you know, I had a writer who had a, who had to wait 10 years. And I thought, oh, I'll never be able to wait <laughs> that long. Are you kidding? That's <laughs> right. not the way it's going to happen for me. So 11 years later, I was coming home from a session and I was stopped at a red light and I was in a really bad mood and I will just, you know, confess I was PMSing and I was smoking a cigarette, which I did a very occasionally, but when I was in this state of mind, I smoked cigarettes and I just stopped at this light and I had this idea in my head, just this thought. And the thought was, I hate the world today. And it hit me. I thought that could be a really good first line mm. of a song. And I say this to songwriters, when you're living your life, you've got to just stay open to these little thoughts that yep. come in. And if something tells you it could be a song, Write it down. Right. right. Put it in your voice memo because, yeah. you know, you could have just driven on when the light turned green and never thought about that again. And they're gems. Right. I had met Meredith a few weeks before her manager had introduced us. I had gone to see her show at the Mint. I thought she's a great performer. She's got a lot of balls. I don't think she's going to take no for an answer. And I bet you I can write this song with her. So I called her and I told her about it. And she totally got it. And it wasn't like she thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to, you know, write that with Shelly because that's a good... She really felt where I was coming from. Mm, she yeah. and I had something in common personality-wise. Yeah. And um, she came over the next day and we locked ourselves in a room half the size of this. It was just the two of us with her acoustic guitar. We didn't have a beatbox. We didn't have a track going. Right. And we literally went back and forth and back and forth, line, 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 until that song was done. And we mm. both looked at each other and we thought, I think it's good. I think it's good. But I thought, what do I know? You know, I'm, right. I've been wrong for <laughs> right. 10 years. <laughs> and she took it to, I think she was, um, she had a development deal with Interscope at the time. And I believe the deal stated that if she played something for Interscope, it was getting to a point in time where if they passed on this next one, she was allowed to walk. Wow. And they passed. Um, Lori Levy, Meredith's manager, played it for Perry Watts Russell, who was in Capitol at the time. And he said, bingo, let's do it. They called me and told me, and I, and I just, you know, I didn't want to get my hopes up. But um, 
I'm glad I didn't get my hopes up because when I finally heard it on the radio, it was way sweeter. Yeah. You remember and the first time you heard it on the radio? Yes. I was driving down the canyon and I and I and I heard it and I took out my cell phone, which was the size of a brick. It was like, you know, <laughs> they were huge, that Motorola thing. And I tried to call everybody to tell them I tried to call my publisher in New York. I tried to call Adam. I tried to call my mother. I tried to call my best friend. And it was in the canyon. All call the the calls were just you got more dropped calls then right. in nineteen ninety seven or than, right. than the calls that went through. And I realized by the time I got finished trying to reach everybody I wanted to tell, the song was over. And I thought, I'm never doing that again. Wow. Because I missed it. Yeah. And um I've had a few more hits since then, but never enough to take it for granted. Wow. And if a song of mine comes on the radio, I don't care where I am, what it is, what I'm doing, I just listen. Yeah. And I just take it all in. Well, one of the terms that you use to describe co-writing, and we see it throughout your book, but you use the term song sex. Yes. Uh, Talk about what that term means to you and why that analogy is applicable to the collaborative process. Well, for me, I like to have a certain amount of foreplay with somebody I'm going to write a song with or have song sex with. Um, I like to go for a walk. I like to go out for coffee. Um, I feel like everybody's in such a rush these days that we get in a room and do it more wham, bam, thank you, ma'am style. It's the first thing that comes up and you write about and and you got to get your craft on and that's fine. But I do like the foreplay. And then once you jump into bed with somebody, hopefully somebody that you know a little bit about now you sort of get into a groove together and you move together and somebody shifts or plays a different chord change and you go with it like you would making love i mean i write about it with humor but it's really not that funny Hmm. it is very analogous with the act of making love well it's very applicable when you think about the fact that when you're bringing in ideas you're really vulnerable. It's almost like you're standing there naked in front of somebody in a way. Um, you know, another one of your mantras is dare to suck. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I think it's very important in a writing session to trust who you're writing with enough so that you can say anything that comes to your mind, even if you know it sucks, even if you know it's a bad idea, because sometimes these bad ideas, okay, You th- these bad ideas occur to you for a reason. Right. The idea itself might not work for the song, but the reason you arrived at it has meaning. And if your co-writer is astute, they're going to follow your stream of consciousness, mm-hmm. and they might say, yeah, that idea sucks, but I know why you got there. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that word has an aesthetic sound to it that works maybe the meaning is wrong but i'm going to go with the sound right so if you're with somebody who you feel you can't do that with Mm -hmm. you're with the wrong person or if you're with somebody who rolls their eyes when you put out one of those bad ideas you're with the wrong person right so you have to dare to suck or put out any idea that occurs occurs to you because it's part of the creative process 
Yeah. Well, sometimes the results of a songwriting session can take some unexpected turns. Um, and I want to ask you about a song called Human on the Inside that was recorded by Divinals in 1996. But really it found its home as a Pretenders adult top 40 single under the title Human in 1999. Tell us about that one. They recorded it and they made a very um, avant-garde recording and demo of the song. In a grunge way, it worked, and I was very excited to hear Chrissy Amplett sing my song. However, it was released in Australia, and it got a very lukewarm reception. And I thought, like every time you cry, that's that. Happy to be associated with the right. Divinals in any way, shape, or form. But next thing I know, um, Chrissy Hind hears the song through so many people who loved my song, they decided to play it for her. Um, my my publisher had gone to kindergarten with her manager. <laughs> um, my uh, uh, Linda Livingston from BMI knew Chrissy Hines' agent. And another friend of mine in London said he knew Chrissy's interior decorator. I mean, this was just absurd. These <laughs> days, it's like you have to beg somebody to play right. a right. song of yours to somebody. But everybody was coming out of the woodwork. They just had an affinity for this song. Yeah. And next thing I knew, Chrissy Hind wanted to record it too. Um, and she did. And it was another one of those songs I put into the dash of my car and just drove around and drove around listening to it over and over. I just, this is what, I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, she played it at Lilith Fair that year and to an audience of 50,000 people announced that I wrote this song for her, which is another thing that's unheard of now. Yeah, right. Because very often... Um, Today, I don't know why it's more important than ever, recording artists are expected to have written right. their song, or partially, and their fans want to know that they did, so that she just announced... It, it's, I, lo I look back at some of these things, it's, it's surreal to mm. me, because a lot of culture has, has changed in that regard, a lot. I think. Well, in 1998, Brandy recorded Almost Doesn't Count, which you also sang background vocals on. Um, that song went to number 16 on both the R&B and pop chart, marking your first collaboration with Guy Roche, uh, with whom you've had much success. Talk about how the two of you first began working together and what makes your collaborations work so well. I've had a comfort level with Guy. Um, we could get together for three sessions and not come up with anything and not blame each other and still want to get together again because we knew we'd stumble on something. Right. In fact, Almost Doesn't Count was a song we started and we weren't sure, is this country, is this R&B, it's an AABA structure, are people going to get this? And we actually put it on the back burner for many months, wrote something else that day, just sort of wrote it off and then got together a few months into it. And um, we said, let's revisit that. It just needed some space. And when we visited it, it became a lot clearer on how to proceed. In fact, we still weren't sure whether it was country or R&B, but we just knew that the song had a heartbeat. 
and needed to be finished. Yeah. And Mark Wills had a charting country single on that. And I think Brandy charted on both the pop and the R&B charts. So uh, that question still hasn't been answered. Yeah, it, it's R&B and country. <laughs> it's all of it's, it. It's yeah. whatever. A good song hopefully will, you know, just can be dressed up in many, many outfits. Well, you know, you had your success with the Meredith Brooks song. I mean, it went all the way to number two on the Billboard Pop Chart and got you a Grammy nomination for Best Rock Song. But you got your first number one Billboard single in the first week of January 2000 when Christina Aguilera's recording of What a Girl Wants became the first number one song of this millennium. Um, talk about coming up with that song and how Christina ended up recording it. Um, that was another really comfortable day with Guy. Um, we were in a tiny little room in his studio with, he was at the keyboard. I had, uh, he started playing something and it felt, it had a really nice groove. Yeah. That's what it was. And um, it made me think of something that I had, written down. And where did I write it down? I knew it was a receipt somewhere. And there it was at the bottom of my bag. I had, um, you know, Adam and I had spent three years going back and forth, a long distance relationship after we met. I, I was in New York and he was in LA and he waited and he was very patient. And I had written these words about that. And they fit with what he, you know, sometimes words don't fit exactly, but the essence does. We must have sent that song out 50, 100 places, wow. and it got passed on. Wow. When Stephen Rosen played it for Ron Fair, Ron heard the potential. In fact, the song at the time was called and written as What a Girl Needs, What a Girl Needs, What a Girl Wants, and Ron looked at me and said, the once has more juju or whatever mm, right. you know the wants is sexier than needs let's put the one up front and i thought but ron then i gotta switch all the rhyme scheme right and i looked at christina who i had been introduced to and i knew how she sang and i thought i want to be on that record hmm. and it made it it meant enough for me well. so i switched it around and she cut it and the rest is history so how did the rhyme work then with the original version? What a girl needs, what a girl wants, whatever, whatever, da-da-da-da, in your arms, oh, or something okay. like that. Oh, yeah, I had yeah. that. Right. I can't, I can't, I'm so used to it the way it right. is, right, not the right. way I wrote it that, I mean, I have it in my notes somewhere. Yeah, but. yeah, all right. Well, your second number one single was another Christina song, Come On Over, Baby, All I Want Is You. role you played in terms of your contribution to that one right I wasn't in the room when this when come on over baby was conceived this was a song that was written by um I wish I could give you the whole list of them and I don't want to mention one because right, I can't right, remember right. them all but there's there eight like, or nine of them aren't yeah, there? yeah, yeah. And a lot a of them were in Sweden and and Ron loved the song and he cut it and it actually came out and was on the record and then Ron wanted the um wanted come on over baby to be 
the single that followed What a Girl Wants, and he wasn't sure about the lyric on it. And I said, but it's already released on the on the album. And he yeah. said, yeah, but we can, we can adjust it. And if we tighten them up, huh. we can re-release it as the next single and she could just sing it again. And I, I was so out of the loop. I had no idea that people could do this, yeah. but I said, okay, I'm happy to do that. Glad you called me. Mm-hmm. I need to know though, that the original writers are aware I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. I need to have their blessing. Huh. Well, I've heard you say that when it comes to lyrics that you feel like one of your, your strengths is writing verses, which is not something that you hear from a lot of songwriters. A lot of folks, you know, feel like choruses come more easily than, than the verse material. Um, talk a little I'm bit a about that. I'm a good starter. I don't know if I want to say that that's my strength because I'm also strong at hooks. But when I get in a room with somebody, somebody starts playing a guitar or something, Verses very often just slip right out of me, and it's a. I'm really good at starting an idea and the stream of consciousness, conversational tone. That could, I hate the world today. Well, after Christina had her success with your songs, I understand you and Guy got the chance to write with her for the first time. Talk about the difference in writing for an artist versus writing with the artist. When you're writing with somebody big like that, there's a lot riding on the session. Are you right. going to write something? remarkable um are you gonna suck that day i mean some days you just suck even after you write a big hit you just suck some days you're not on your game you think too much and i think that that's sort of what happened that day because christina was on Hmm. and she brought forth this idea she had in her journal um and it was about being an independent woman and i in the back of my mind sort of wrote that off as being sort of amateur-y or you know been done already Mm -hmm. and steered us in another direction um and we wound up writing a song that wasn't that remarkable and she probably felt that her original idea was pretty good and took it and wrote it with somebody else (laughs) and they had a really big hit with it except she didn't record it right it was the kelly clarkson song oh yeah that was miss independent yeah i don't know what happened there but somebody heard it for kelly and they made a good decision there well, in the middle of all that Christina Aguilera success, you had a hit single with Mandy Moore called I Want to Be With You, which fell just shy of the pop top 20. particular success with female artists cutting your songs and I'm wondering if that's kind of a conscious choice for you or if you feel like there's a tendency in the music industry to typecast female writers as writing primarily for female voices when I think about the songs I've had the most success with and I've been thinking about this a lot lately they are songs that I really felt deeply and emotionally about the party songs the fun club songs that um, I've tried very hard to do and wish I could do more of and better, um, aren't the ones that take off for me. So I think what people resonate with is the honest emotion I'm feeling. And a lot of those emotions are connected to my femaleness because the song, even bitch, I mean, it was fun and up, 
but it was heavy. It was it was about something real, yeah. right? Um, and maybe that's what I'm best at. Well, in the early 2000s, you were having hits with the hottest pop artists of the day, but you were also getting cuts by luminaries like Gladys Knight, who recorded um, That's Why They Call It Love on her At Last album, Joe Cocker, who recorded three songs you wrote with John Shanks on his Respect Yourself record, um, and Cher, who cut Rain Rain on her 2002 Living Proof album. So you were creating pop music for a new generation, but also getting the chance to hear legends from the previous generation sing your songs. Uh, That must have been a fairly surreal experience for someone who grew up hearing these artists. The biggest one for me was Chrissy Hind, hearing her sing my words. Yeah. Um, I might have gone through a period of taking a little bit for granted when all those songs were getting cut. I think I was coming off of a lot of success and they were getting cut easier. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I never really thought about that, you know? Okay, here's here's what the answer is. I was a mother with a small child. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I didn't really get a chance to go, oh my God, Gladys Knight. And I was just, I was in this black hole of having a baby and then a young toddler. Yeah. And I think I was just so happy that Things were happening and coming through, but I wasn't paying as much of attention as I did in the very beginning, or maybe as much as I would do now, because mm. I was distracted right yeah. around then. Yeah, sure. You know, I'm sitting here looking at the platinum record from the Britney Spears Circus album on your wall here, and in 2008, she cut your song out from under and put it on that record. how that song came together the piece of music was sent to me by david stam who is still a publisher he loved the melody but he wasn't sure about the words and he thought it would be great for britney and he sent it to me and i drove around and marinated with it for uh, a week or two and came up with out from under um teresa labarbera white who was working on britney's record Loved it. Uh, liaised it over to Brittany. Um, Brittany wanted to cut it, and she finally did cut it. And there was talk about it being the international single. Now, truth be told, I like to try to write about something that's actually going on in somebody's life. Right. And this was a time when she was, she and Justin Timberlake were breaking up and it was right. all over the tabloids. And I thought, girls got to be hurting. <laughs> I just, I don't know for sure, but I imagine. And Out From Under was about looking forward to moving on with life once I'm out from under you. And when push came to shove, uh, Teresa took me out for coffee one day and held my hand over cappuccino and said, Shelly, it's not going to. It's not going to be the single. And I said, why? And she said, you know, Brittany feels it's just makes her look too vulnerable. And I thought, 
but she's so good at vulnerable. <laughs> she's yeah. she's the vulnerable queen. Right. But I guess maybe I, I guess, I don't know. I might have hit the nail too on the head huh. and maybe mm. she didn't want to put it out there that my yeah. heart is breaking over somebody real. Sometimes it's yeah. easy to sing about my heart is breaking over my imaginary boyfriend because right. it's not right. so real. Sure. Right. I don't know if I'm right, but for whatever reason, um, it, it wasn't a single about, I'm really proud of that song. I, I think she sang it beautifully and I, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm still so happy to be, included on that album single right. or not it was yeah. wonderful to have her sing my song well you and tom higginson of the plain white tees got together and wrote all that we needed which was the title track on the group's debut album in 2005 and you also collaborated on the song you belong from the band's 2015 release american night you, you belong you belong inside the songs i sing Now, you've contributed to some songs that end up with layers of complex pop production and some that are just more straight-ahead, guitar-driven, organic-sounding records. Do you see your own approach to writing kind of favoring one of those two paths over the other, or do you enjoy the diversity? I I like the diversity, but I do... You know, I got... I love writing in a room with a guy or a gal and their guitar. Hmm. I just... I don't know. I just things fall out of me quicker. Yeah. Um, not quicker, but a, a different kind of song comes from it. When tracks started being circulated, I was very offended by that kind of process. I was also offended by the fact that the same track was given to 10 different people. Yeah. Um, and they didn't tell you. Hmm. But even when they told you, it didn't feel right. Right. Because I felt like I was auditioning like my lyric and melody, AKA my top line. Yeah. Um, and so I felt like I was writing to something instead of writing with somebody who believed I would come up with the goods. So Tom came in, he had a guitar, he sat right here. And that song came very quickly and was the title of their album that they made on Fearless Records. Yeah. I loved writing with him. He's a, he's, a, he's a really good writer, very tasty. Our sensibilities are very the same. I love where he goes melodically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've continued to have success with newer pop artists, including Jesse J, who released your song Who Are You as a single, uh, which Ed Sheeran also covered, uh, Mistake, which Demi Lovato recorded on her 2011 album Unbroken, and Pretending, which was a top 40 hit for the Glee cast. Uh, but the world of pop songwriting has changed quite a bit in recent years with the advent of, of beat makers and so-called top-line writing, which you've referred to. Um, talk about those developments and, and the politics of writer credits today and the, the challenges that the new paradigm represents for writers such as yourself? Well, there can be many top liners in a room um, adding contribution to a given piece of music or track. Um, how that's changed in songwriting is that before technology, when songs were simply written more organically without any computer-generated music or beats, the song was usually divided between the amount of writers who were in the room mm -hmm. writing the song. Right. But there are some people who just sit in a room and make tracks and send them out to 20 people, and whoever writes the top line wins the prize, mm -hmm. but the 
but the programmer who programmed the track gets 50%. Right. So whereas the melody and lyric years ago used to be the song. <laughs> right. And the, the producers used to get the players in to play it for the record. Right. That was called the arrangement and they were all paid. Sure. Um, now, whoever does the track will get 50% of the song yeah. no matter what right. goes on top of it. Now, if you're in the room with somebody and they're programming a track that is inspiring you to come up with your melody and lyric, yeah. well, they're in the room with you. Yeah. yeah. But it's gotten kind of complicated because what if there are three top liners in the room and somebody programming a track, hmm. does it get divided four ways right. because mm, you're right. all together? Yeah. Hmm. Or does the programmer get 50% and then the other 50% get divided between yeah. the top liners? Right. Right. Things have gotten complicated yeah. and it's not so cut and dry anymore. Yeah. Then I had the situation where Somebody didn't like my top line, used somebody else's. I took my top line, put it on another song. It came out, and that first programmer came out of the woodwork and said, hey, that's my song. Jeez. Well, you divorced me. Right, right, you right. gave up right. the right. So Jeez. it gets very yeah. complicated. Yeah, it sounds like I mean, if somebody is. asks me if I top line, I will say I do. I kind of cringe a little bit right. because I am from a different generation who is i believe successfully straddling the old and the new school yeah. i have a lot of nostalgia but i'm here and i'm enjoying myself and i'm doing i'm still working yeah right. um for n newcomers who only ever heard of the term top line i don't think that they're going to be as um perplexed by right. it Right. Well, Shelley, you certainly have done a fantastic job in your book uh, summarizing your amazing career, giving us some deep behind-the-scenes uh, thoughts on the songwriting process, and we've only been able to, to scratch the surface here today. So I really want to encourage people to take the opportunity to go on Amazon, uh, order that book so they can hear even more of, of your great stories and, and your thoughts on the, the state of the changing music industry and sort of what was good and bad about the old versus the new, the way you, you've navigated that. It's really uh, fascinating stuff. And in fact, we're going to have, uh, as a reminder, two lucky listeners who are going to win a copy of Confessions of a Serial Songwriter. Um, to enter that drawing, go to our website at songcraftshow.com, click on the contact tab and fill in your name, email address, and be sure to put Confessions of a Serial Songwriter in the comments section and you will be entered to win. And then uh, we will announce a winner on an upcoming show. We will also uh, email you if you are the winner of that. So again, April 15th, uh, songcraft at songcraftshow.com. And uh, you might get a chance to have your very own free copy of Confessions of a Serial Songwriter. Shelly, thanks again for uh, letting us come to your home today and spend some time with you. It's been, uh, been really a joy Thank for you. us. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.